This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Recording by Diana Solomon, Chicago. Volume 1, Chapter 13, Part A. As when a shepherd of the Hebrid Isles placed far amid the melancholy main, whether it be lone fancy him beguiles, or that aerial being sometimes deign to stand embodied to our senses plain, sees on the naked hill or valley low, the whilst an ocean Phoebus dips his wane, a vast assembly moving to and fro, then all at once in air dissolves the wondrous show. Castle of Indolence Madame Charon's Erebus at length yielded to her vanity. Some very splendid entertainments, which Madame Clerval had given, and the general adulation which was paid her, made the former more anxious than before to secure an alliance that would so much exalt her in her own opinion and in that of the world. She proposed terms for the immediate marriage of her niece, and offered to give Emily a dower, provided Madame Clerval observed equal terms on the part of her nephew. Madame Clerval listened to the proposal, and considering that Emily was the apparent heiress of her aunt's wealth, accepted it. Meanwhile, Emily knew nothing of the transaction, till Madame Charon informed her that she must make preparation for the nuptials, which would be celebrated without further delay. Then, astonished and wholly unable to account for this sudden conclusion, which Valancourt had not solicited, for he was ignorant of what had passed between the elder ladies, and had not dared to hope such good fortune. She decisively objected to it. Madame Charon, however, quite as jealous of contradiction now as she had been formerly, contended for a speedy marriage with as much vehemence as she had formerly opposed whatever had the most remote possibility of leading to it. And Emily's scruples disappeared when she again saw Valancourt, who was now informed of the happiness designed for him, and came to claim a promise of it from herself. While preparations were making for these nuptials, Montoni became the acknowledged lover of Madame Charon, and, though Madame Clerval was much displeased when she heard of the approaching connection, and was willing to prevent that of Valancourt with Emily, her conscience told her that she had no right thus to trifle with their peace, and Madame Clerval, though a woman of fashion, was far less advanced than her friend in the art of deriving satisfaction from distinction and admiration rather than from conscience. Emily observed with concern the ascendancy which Montoni had acquired over Madame Charon, as well as the increasing frequency of his visits, and her own opinion of this Italian was confirmed by that of Valancourt, who had always expressed a dislike of him. As she was one morning sitting at work in the pavilion, enjoying the pleasant freshness of spring, whose colors were now spread upon the landscape, and listening to Valancourt, who was reading, but who often laid aside the book to converse. She received a summons to attend Madame Charon immediately, and had scarcely entered the dressing-room when she observed with surprise the dejection of her aunt's countenance, and the contrasted gaiety of her dress. "'So, niece,' said Madame, and she stopped under some degree of embarrassment. "'I sent for you. I—I I wish to see you. I have news to tell you.' From this hour you must consider the Signor Montoni as your uncle. We were married this morning. Astonished, 
not so much of the marriage as of the secrecy with which it had been concluded, and the agitation with which it was announced, Emily at length attributed the privacy to the wish of Montoni rather than of her aunt. His wife, however, intended that the contrary should be believed, and therefore added, "'You see, I wish to avoid a bustle, but now the ceremony is over I shall do so no longer, and I wish to announce to my servants that they must receive the Signor Montoni for their master.' Emily made a feeble attempt to congratulate her on these apparently imprudent nuptials. "'I shall now celebrate my marriage with some splendor,' continued Madame Montoni, "'and to save time I shall avail myself of the preparation that has been made for yours, which will, of course, be delayed a little while. Such of your wedding clothes are ready I shall expect you will appear in, to do honor to this festival. I also wish you to inform Monsieur Valancourt that I have changed my name and he will acquaint Madame Clerval.' In a few days I shall give a grand entertainment, at which I shall request their presence. Emily was so lost in surprise and various thought, that she made Madame Montoni scarcely any reply, but, at her desire, she returned to inform Valancourt of what had passed. Surprise was not his predominant emotion on hearing of these hasty nuptials, and when he learned that they were to be the means of delaying his own, and that the very ornaments of the chateau which had been prepared to grace the nuptial day of his Emily were to be degraded to the celebration of Madame Montoni's, grief and indignation agitated him alternately. He could conceal neither from the observation of Emily, whose efforts to abstract him from these serious emotions, and to laugh at the apprehensive considerations that assailed him, were ineffectual, and when at length he took leave, there was an earnest tenderness in his manner that extremely affected her. She even shed tears when he disappeared at the end of the terrace, yet knew not exactly why she should do so. Montoni now took possession of the chateau, and the command of its inhabitants with the ease of a man who had long considered it to be his own. His friend Cavigny, who had been extremely serviceable in having paid Madame Chiron the attention and flattery which she required, but from which Montoni too often revolted, had apartments assigned to him, and received from the domestics an equal degree of obedience with the master of the mansion. Within a few days Madame Montoni, as she had promised, gave a magnificent entertainment to a very numerous company, among whom was Valancourt, but at which Madame Clerval excused herself from attending. There was a concert, ball, and supper. Valancourt was, of course, Emily's partner, and though when he gave a look to the decorations of the apartments, he could not but remember that they were designed for other festivities than those they now contributed to celebrate, he endeavored to check his concern by considering that a little while only would elapse before they would be given to their original destination. During this evening Madame Montoni danced, laughed, and talked incessantly, while Montoni, silent, reserved, and somewhat haughty, seemed weary of the parade and of the frivolous company it had drawn together. This was the first and the last entertainment given in celebration of their nuptials. Montoni, though the severity of his temper and the gloominess of his pride prevented him from enjoying such festivities, was extremely willing to promote them. It was seldom that he could meet in any company a man of more address, and still seldomer of more understanding than himself. The balance of advantage in such parties or in the connections which might arise from them must therefore be on his side, and knowing as he did the selfish purposes for which they are generally frequented, 
he had no objection to measure his talents of dissimulation with those of any other competitor for distinction and plunder. But his wife, when her own interest was immediately concerned, had sometimes more discernment than vanity, acquired a consciousness of her inferiority to other women in personal attractions, which, uniting with the jealousy natural to the discovery, counteracted his readiness for mingling with all the parties Toulouse could afford. Till she had, as she supposed, the affections of a husband to lose, she had no motive for discovering the unwelcome truth, and it had never obtruded itself upon her. But now that it influenced her policy, she opposed her husband's inclination for company, with the more eagerness because she believed him to be really as well received in the female society of the place as during his addresses to her he had affected to be. A few weeks only had elapsed since the marriage when Madame Montoni informed Emily that the Signor intended to return to Italy as soon as the necessary preparation could be made for so long a journey. "'We shall go to Venice,' said she, "'where the Signor has a fine mansion, and from thence to his estate in Tuscany. Why do you look so grave, child? You who are so fond of a romantic country and fine views will doubtless be delighted with this journey.' "'Am I then to be of the party, madam?' said Emily, with extreme surprise and emotion. "'Most certainly,' replied her aunt. "'How could you imagine we should leave you behind? "'But I see you are thinking of the Chevalier. "'He is not yet, I believe, informed of the journey, "'but he very soon will be so. "'Signor Montoni is gone to acquaint Madame Clerval of our journey, "'and to say that the proposed connection between the families "'must from this time be thought of no more.' The unfeeling manner in which Madame Montoni thus informed her niece that she must be separated, perhaps for ever, from the man with whom she was on the point of being united for life, added to the dismay which she must otherwise have suffered at such intelligence. When she could speak, she asked the cause of the sudden change in Madame's sentiments towards Valancourt, but the only reply she could obtain was that the Signor had forbade the connection, considering it to be greatly inferior to what Emily might reasonably expect. I now leave the affair entirely to the Signor, added Madame Montoni, but I must say that Monsieur Valancourt never was a favourite with me, and I was over-persuaded, or I should not have given my consent to the connection. I was weak enough, I am so foolish sometimes, to suffer other people's uneasiness to affect me, and so my better judgment yielded to your affliction. But the Signor has very properly pointed out the folly of this, and he shall not have to reprove me a second time. I am determined that you shall submit to those who know how to guide you better than yourself. I am determined that you shall be conformable. Emily would have been astonished at the assertions of this eloquent speech had not her mind been so overwhelmed by the sudden shock it had received that she scarcely heard a word of what was laterally addressed to her. Whatever were the weaknesses of Madame Montoni, she might have avoided to accuse herself with those of compassion and tenderness to the feelings of others, and especially to those of Emily. It was the same ambition that lately prevailed upon her to solicit an alliance with Madame Clerval's family, which induced her to withdraw from it now that her marriage with Montoni had exalted her self-consequence, and, with it, her views for her niece. Emily was at this time too much affected to employ either remonstrance or entreaty on this topic, and when at length she attempted the latter, her emotion overcame her speech, and she retired to her apartment to think if in the present state of her mind to think was possible upon this sudden and overwhelming subject. 
It was very long before her spirits were sufficiently composed to permit the reflection, which when it came was dark and even terrible. She saw that Montoni sought to aggrandize himself in his disposal of her, and it occurred that his friend Cavigni was the person for whom he was interested. The prospect of going to Italy was still rendered darker when she considered the tumultuous situation of that country, then torn by civil commotion, where every petty state was at war with its neighbor, and even every castle liable to the attack of an invader. She considered the person to whose immediate guidance she would be committed, and the vast distance that was to separate her from Valancourt, and at the recollection of him every other image vanished from her mind, and every thought was again obscured by grief. In this perturbed state she passed some hours, and when she was summoned to dinner, she entreated permission to remain in her own apartment. But Madame Montoni was alone, and the request was refused. Emily and her aunt said little during the repast. The one occupied by her griefs, the other engrossed by the disappointment which the unexpected absence of Montoni occasioned. For not only was her vanity piqued by the neglect, but her jealousy alarmed by what she considered as a mysterious engagement. When the cloth was drawn and they were alone, Emily renewed the mention of Valancourt. But her aunt, neither softened to pity or awakened to remorse, became enraged that her will should be opposed and the authority of Montoni questioned, though this was done by Emily with her usual gentleness, who, after a long and torturing conversation, retired in tears. As she crossed the hall, a person entered it by the great door, whom, as her eyes hastily glanced that way, she imagined to be Montoni, and she was passing on with quicker steps when she heard the well-known voice of Valancourt. "'Emily! Oh, my Emily!' cried he in a tone faltering with impatience, while she turned, and, as he advanced, was alarmed at the expression of his countenance and the eager desperation in his air. "'In tears, Emily! I would speak with you,' said he. I have much to say. Conduct me to where we may converse. But you tremble. You are ill. Let me lead you to a seat. He observed the open door of an apartment, and hastily took her hand to lead her thither. But she attempted to withdraw it, and said, with a languid smile, I am better already. If you wish to see my aunt, she is in the dining parlor. I must speak with you, my Emily, replied Valancourt. Good God! Is it already come to this? Are you indeed so willing to resign me? But this is an improper place. I am overheard. Let me entreat your attention, if only for a few minutes. When you have seen my aunt, said Emily. I was wretched enough when I came hither, exclaimed Valancourt. Do not increase my misery by this coldness, this cruel refusal. The despondency with which he spoke this affected her almost to tears but she persisted in refusing to hear him till he had conversed with Madame Montoni. "'Where's her husband? Where, then, is Montoni?' said Valancourt in an altered tone. "'Is it he to whom I must speak?' Emily, terrified for the consequence of the indignation that flashed in his eyes, tremblingly assured him that Montoni was not at home, and entreated he would endeavour to moderate his resentment. At the tremulous accents of her voice, his eyes softened instantly from wildness into tenderness. "'You are ill, Emily,' said he. "'They will destroy us both. Forgive me that I dared to doubt your affection.' Emily no longer opposed him as he led her into an adjoining parlour. The manner in which he had named Montoni had so much alarmed her for his own safety 
that she was now only anxious to prevent the consequences of his resentment. He listened to her entreaties with attention, but replied to them only with looks of despondency and tenderness, concealing as much as possible the sentiments he felt towards Montoni, that he might soothe the apprehensions which distressed her. But she saw the veil he had spread over his just resentment, and his assumed tranquillity only alarming her more, she urged at length the impolicy of forcing an interview with Montoni, and of taking any measure which might render their separation irremediable. Valancourt yielded to these remonstrances, and her affecting entreaties drew from him a promise that however Montoni might persist in his design of disuniting them, he would not seek to redress his wrongs by violence. For my sake, said Emily, let the consideration of what I should suffer deter you from such a mode of revenge. For your sake, Emily, replied Valancourt, his eyes filling with tears of tenderness and grief while he gazed upon her. Yes. Yes, I shall subdue myself. But though I have given you my solemn promise to do this, do not expect that I can tamely submit to the authority of Montoni. If I could, I should be unworthy of you. Yet, oh, Emily, how long may he condemn me to live without you? How long may it be before you return to France? Emily endeavored to soothe him with assurances of her unalterable affection, and by representing that in little more than a year she should be her own mistress, as far as related to her aunt, from whose guardianship her age would then release her, assurances which gave little consolation to Valancourt, who considered that she would then be in Italy and in the power of those whose dominion over her would not cease with their rights. But he affected to be consoled by them. Emily, comforted by the promise she had obtained and by his apparent composure, was about to leave him when her aunt entered the room. She threw a glance of sharp reproof upon her niece, who immediately withdrew, and of haughty displeasure upon Valancourt. "'This is not the conduct I should have expected from you, sir,' said she. "'I did not expect to see you in my house, after you had been informed that your visits were no longer agreeable, much less that you would seek a clandestine interview with my niece, and that she would grant one.' Valancourt, perceiving it necessary to vindicate Emily from such a design, explained that the purpose of his own visit had been to request an interview with Montoni, and he then entreated upon the subject of it, with the tempered spirit which the sex, rather than the respectability of Madame Montoni, demanded. His expostulations were answered with severe rebuke. She lamented again that her prudence had ever yielded to what she termed compassion, and added that she was so sensible of the folly of her former consent that to prevent the possibility of a repetition, she had committed the affair entirely to the conduct of Signor Montoni. The feeling eloquence of Valancourt, however, at length made her sensible in some measure of her unworthy conduct, and she became susceptible to shame, but not remorse. She hated Valancourt, who awakened her to this painful sensation, and in proportion as she grew dissatisfied with herself, her abhorrence of him increased. This was also the more inveterate, because his tempered words and manner were such as, without accusing her, compelled her to accuse herself, and neither left her a hope that the odious portrait was the caricature of his prejudice, or afforded her an excuse for expressing the violent resentment with which she contemplated it. At length her anger rose to such a height that Valancourt was compelled to leave the house abruptly, lest he should forfeit his own esteem by an intemperate reply. He was then convinced that from Madame Montoni he had nothing to hope, 
for what if either pity or justice could be expected from a person who could feel the pain of guilt without the humility of repentance. To Montoni he looked with equal despondency, since it was nearly evident that this plan of separation originated with him, and it was not probable that he would relinquish his own views to entreaties or remonstrances which he must have foreseen and have been prepared to resist. Yet remembering his promise to Emily, and more solicitous concerning his love than jealous of his consequence, Valancourt was careful to do nothing that might unnecessarily irritate Montoni. He wrote to him, therefore, not to demand an interview, but to solicit one, and having done this, he endeavored to wait with calmness his reply. Madame Clerval was passive in the affair. When she gave her approbation to Valancourt's marriage, it was in the belief that Emily would be the heiress of Madame Montoni's fortune. And though upon the nuptials of the latter, when she perceived the fallacy of this expectation, her conscience had withheld her from adopting any measure to prevent the union, her benevolence was not sufficiently active to impel her towards any step that might now promote it. She was, on the contrary, secretly pleased that Valancourt was released from an engagement which she considered to be as inferior in point of fortune to his merit as his alliance was thought by Montoni to be humiliating to the beauty of Emily. And though her pride was wounded by this rejection of a member of her family, she disdained to show resentment otherwise than by silence. Montoni, in his reply to Valancourt, said that as an interview could neither remove the objections of the one or overcome the wishes of the other, it would serve only to produce useless altercation between them. He therefore thought proper to refuse it. In consideration of the policy suggested by Emily, and of his promise to her, Valancourt restrained the impulse that urged him to the house of Montoni to demand what had been denied to his entreaties. He only repeated his solicitations to see him, seconding them with all the arguments his situation could suggest. Thus several days passed in remonstrance on one side and inflexible denial on the other. For, whether it was fear or shame or the hatred which results from both that made Montoni shun the man he had injured, he was peremptory in his refusal, and was neither softened to pity by the agony which Valancourt's letters portrayed, or awakened to a repentance of his own injustice by the strong remonstrances he employed. At length Valancourt's letters were returned unopened, and then, in the first moments of passionate despair, he forgot every promise to Emily, except the solemn one which bound him to avoid violence, and hastened to Montoni's chateau, determined to see him by whatever other means might be necessary. Montoni was denied, and Valancourt, when he afterwards inquired for Madame and Mademoiselle Saint-Aubert, was absolutely refused admittance by the servants. Not choosing to submit himself to a contest with these, he at length departed, and returning home in a state of mind approaching to frenzy, wrote to Emily of what had passed, expressed without restraint all the agony of his heart, and entreated that since he must not otherwise hope to see her immediately, she would allow him an interview unknown to Montoni. Soon after he had dispatched this, his passions becoming more temperate, he was sensible of the error he had committed in having given Emily a new subject of distress in the strong mention of his own suffering, and would have given half the world had it been his to recover the letter. Emily, however, was spared the pain she must have received from it by the suspicious policy of Madame Montoni, who had ordered that all letters addressed to her niece should be delivered to herself, 
and who, after having perused this and indulged the expressions of resentment which Valancourt's mention of Montoni provoked, had consigned it to the flames. End of Volume 1, Chapter 13, Part A